Welcome to Device Week. I'm senior reporter for Dos Al Farouk. Many of you know me as Danny. And this week, I'm joined by my colleagues, managing editor Elizabeth Orr and senior reporter Brian Bassetta. Brian, let's go to you first. I think like everyone else, we've been eagerly waiting for the Biden administration to appoint a new FDA commissioner. And now it finally seems to be underway with the nomination of former FDA commissioner Bob Califf. It kind of feels like deja vu all over again. But this week, you watched his opening hearing in the Senate to convince lawmakers to let him run the agency again. Remind our listeners who Califf is. Sure. President Biden's pick to head up the FDA took another step toward confirmation earlier this week after fielding questions from members of the U.S. Senate Health, Education, Labor and Pensions, or HELP Committee. Bob Califf, Biden's choice to replace Acting Commissioner Janet Woodcock, as you mentioned, is a familiar face at the FDA. A cardiologist by trade, Califf was the agency's commissioner for 10 months during the last year of the Obama administration, but resigned when President Trump took office, although he made it clear at the time he wanted to stay on. Yes, uh, Califf's very well respected in academia and industry. Uh, The last time he did this, it was a fairly smooth ride with some senators raising concerns about his potential coziness with companies that he's worked with as a researcher. But for the most part, it wasn't a difficult nomination process. What was the mood of this hearing? How was he received by the Senate committee? I would say it was mostly friendly, Danny. And from the overall tone, I would wager Califf's chances of returning to his former post went up. And why is that? Well, a couple of things stand out. First, as our readers know, when Califf was nominated by President Obama, he was overwhelmingly confirmed with bipartisan support. And some of that bipartisan spirit was evident in the hearing, especially from ranking member Richard Burr, a Republican from North Carolina. It was clear that Burr, as did most of the other committee members, had great personal and professional respect for Califf. But Burr said that at this moment, what the agency needed above all else was leadership. And he said Califf was well prepared to provide that leadership. And then he urged his colleagues to not only support Califf's confirmation, but to do so as quickly as possible. Interesting. It is worth noting, though, that this is the first hearing, so there is still many ways this can turn south for Califf. But you're right. The fact that the last time around he had such strong bipartisan support bodes well for him. What else makes you more confident that he'll get through? Well, Senator Patty Murray, a Democrat from the state of Washington and committee chair who led the hearing, received 13 letters of support for Califf including one from six former FDA commissioners representing both Republican and Democratic administrations, including Scott Gottlieb and Stephen Hahn, the commissioners under President Trump. In their letter, the former commissioners essentially echoed what Burr said. They lauded Califf for his scientific acumen, as well as his public service, and like Burr, urged the Senate to act immediately to confirm. Was there any pushback to Califf during the hearing? Some. The most pointed questions came from Bernie Sanders, who it was later reported said he would not support the nomination. Basically, Sanders was concerned that Califf might be too cozy with Big Pharma, which has been a theme of the Vermont senator for some time. He's often been critical of what he calls the revolving door between the FDA and industry. He also asked Califf why the American people should trust someone who's made a lot of money as an industry consultant and owns, according to Sanders, some $8 million in big pharma stocks. 
In Sanders' view, that closeness to industry erodes the integrity of the FDA to do what's in the best interest of the public. Well, we're not really surprised with Sanders' opposition to Califf. He and fellow Massachusetts Democratic Senator Ed Markey raised similar concerns about Califf back in 2016, but Califf still got through. So how did Califf respond to Sanders this time? <laughs> Very simply, all he said was that at 70 years old, he had nothing to gain and was only motivated to serve the American people. Okay, other than tone, did anything else stand out during the hearing in terms of policy? Sure. A lot of the discussion focused on drugs and the opioid crisis, but what seemed to be a recurrent theme from Califf was balance. Califf said he wanted to establish a framework for using real-world evidence that would allow the agency to make quicker determinations on the benefit-risk ratio for drug approvals, which could also help to speed up the approvals of other technologies such as diagnostic tests and devices. He also spoke of the need for an evidence generation system that relies on data from electronic health records to improve patient safety while also providing a better understanding of the potential benefits and risks of marketed products. And uh, what does Califf mean by balance? Well, what Califf said was that while expediting approvals was a priority for him, he also said you can't move so fast that you put products on the market that might be unsafe. So he stressed the need to find the right balance between keeping Americans safe while getting innovative products to them as quickly as possible. Interesting. Our colleague Brenda Sandberg wrote an article about that in November where Caliph pushed back against industry executives who wanted to speed clinical trials. He advocated for a more cautious tortoise approach to balance patient safety against the need for new treatments. It may be worth revisiting that article for some of our listeners. So basically, Caliph is advocating for a, quote, Goldilocks approach. Exactly. And that approach also speaks to how Caleb came across in the hearing, very measured. He also said that if the FDA approves products more quickly, then there needs to be a system in place to track and study those products over time so the agency can get a real-world perspective on whether they are working or not. Which is what the FDA's National Evaluation System for Health Technology, or NEST, is supposed to do. That was something he advocated for during his first run as commissioner, You mentioned uh, diagnostic testing. I assume there were questions concerning the ongoing pandemic and COVID testing? Yes. The importance of testing came up in a question from Republican Senator Tommy Tuberville from Alabama, who said the lack of testing, especially in the rural communities of his state, was a real problem and it cost lives. Caleb said getting reliable in-home tests to Americans that were free or low cost would be a top priority especially with the emergence of yet another variant. He said testing was especially important in rural America because of the high rate of chronic disease in these areas, and also used this as an example of the need to expand telehealth throughout rural America and other underserved communities. Interesting. So with Burr and others calling for this process to move quickly, any word on when Caleb's nomination might come to a full vote? Nothing set in stone, but it seems most likely will happen early next year. Okay, thanks, Brian. We'll be watching. And now, Elizabeth, over to you. The past few months have been busy in terms of device recalls with Nuvasiv and Cardinal Health and Philips all announcing recalls that the FDA deemed high-risk class one. And recalls on Medtronic's insulin pumps and pump accessories have gone a step further with an inspection related to the recalls bringing an FDA warning letter to the company. Elizabeth, tell us about Medtronic's latest woos. Thanks, Danny. Uh, To start with a bit of backstory, there are two separate recalls, both of which started some time ago and were expanded in recent months. The first recall was on the Minimed 600 insulin pump because a flaw in the pump's retainer ring could prevent the insulin cartridge from locking into place, 
potentially leading to an over or under delivery of insulin. Well, the second recall was of a remote controller device from Minimed 508 and the Paradigm Pump. Software on the remote could allow access by an unauthorized person, posing cybersecurity risks. According to a December 15th announcement from Medtronic, the FDA warning letter came after agency investigators inspected Medtronic's Northridge, California diabetes business headquarters over the summer. And what kind of problems does the warning letter discuss? According to Medtronic, the letter, quote, focuses on the inadequacy of specific medical device quality system requirements at the Northridge facility in the areas of risk assessment, corrective and preventive action, complaint handling, device recalls, and reporting of adverse events. The company says it will use internal resources and external experts to implement a range of corrective actions in response and stress that its core goal is to continue providing high-quality products to patients with diabetes. There's nothing consumers and providers need to do in response to the warning letter, Medtronic said. I know warning letters can be seen as a herald of bigger troubles to come. What's the investor response uh, been on this one? The initial response was pretty negative as Medtronic stock plunged from $111 per share at the end of the day on Tuesday, December 14th, to $102 per share as of lunchtime on Thursday the 16th. One major concern is the firm's pending pre-market application for the 780G automated insulin delivery system, which was expected to win FDA approval by April 2022. Typically, the FDA won't approve products if a related warning letter is pending. And if the 780G's approval is held up significantly, it could spell trouble for Medtronic because the product was crucial to Medtronic's vision for turning around its diabetes division, which has long lagged competitors in terms of sales. Analysts at Wells Fargo speculated that the blow could be the final straw that pushes Medtronic to step out of the diabetes realm entirely. However, Credit Suisse analysts said those fears were overblown and Medtronic's strategy to increase the profitability of its diabetes division still looks good. So the jury is very much out and we'll need to wait and see. But Danny, I want to switch things up for a few minutes and talk about some of the stories you've been working on this week. First of all, you watched a meeting of the FDA's Neurological Devices panel recently where they discussed Brainsgate's Ischemic Stroke System, or ISS 500. Things didn't go in the company's favor. Tell us about that. Thanks, Elizabeth. Yeah, I watched the day-long deliberation of whether the ISS 500 was safe and effective enough to allow on the market. And while the panel of experts agreed that it was relatively safe, the overwhelming majority also said they don't think the device has proven to be effective because it missed all its endpoints. Furthermore, most of them also agree that the benefits of the device don't outweigh the potential risks. Ultimately, the FDA gets to decide whether they listen to the panel and turn down Brainsgate's pre-market approval application. But historically, the agency does tend to listen to its external experts, especially in cases where there is overwhelming agreement. But this device has been in development for more than a decade, right? What happened? I think time happened. The theory behind the device is that by using the implant to stimulate a key part of the brain, patients will see better blood flow and consequently better recovery after an ischemic stroke. Over time, as researchers learn more about the device and patient population, they started modifying the neurostimulator as well as the clinical trials to target a subsection of patients. While in theory this was exactly what they should be doing, it also resulted in data that one, missed the endpoints, and two, you can't really extrapolate to a broader population. One of the main concerns was that while there was some effectiveness shown in the intended population, once you looked at the U.S. population, the effectiveness was basically not there anymore, which is a problem when you're trying to prove a device for people in the U.S. 
On the plus side for the company, however, the panelists agreed that the data right now doesn't mean that the device doesn't work. It just means there isn't enough data to show that it works, and they hope Brainsgate will continue the trial. Now, whether they have the resources and patience to continue the research after more than a decade of trying is a different matter. Interesting. Thanks for that insight. I also wanted to talk to you about a new draft guidance that you report on in which the FDA is trying to create clear definitions of what it considers a medical device and what is a counterfeit device. Tell us about how that guidance came about and what it means for industry. Right. Some of our listeners and readers may remember that at the end of 2020, Congress passed the Safeguarding Therapeutics Act. The law basically gives the FDA the authority to stop counterfeit devices from coming into the U.S. and destroying them if they do. The law is meant to protect U.S. manufacturers from competing against counterfeiters. The only problem is that the agency until now hasn't really defined what a counterfeit device is compared to a legally marketed device. This draft guidance attempts to do that. So what are some of the definitions the agency wants to use to differentiate legal medical devices from their counterfeits? Well, in short, the law defines medical devices as items recognized in the official national formulary, the United States Pharmacopeia, or any supplement to them. Devices also have to be intended to diagnose or treat a disease or condition, or they're intended to affect the structure or function of a person or animal. Remember, the FDA also oversees animal products. The FDA then says from its understanding, a counterfeit device is one that uses a likeness or illegal trademark of a legal device. They have a much more nuanced legalese definition that you can read in my article, but that basically gets the gist of it. Now, remember, this is just a draft guidance, so stakeholders can give their two cents on whether they agree or disagree with the FDA's definition before it's made final, and we'll keep an eye out for what comes of it. Well, I think that's all for us this week on Device Week and our last show of the year. I want to thank all our listeners for tuning in and wish you all happy holidays. We're still in a pandemic, so please be safe out there. If you want to learn more about what we've been talking about today and just want to see more of our reporting, head over to www.medtechinsight.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at medtech underscore insight. For now, thanks for listening. <laughs>